Hey, Andy. I was just sitting in the cut like a fucking sniper, learning your your temperament, your movements, your behaviors, <laughs> so I could kneecap you one bullet uh, at I a just... time rhetorically. No, your time has not started yet. I'm 7,000 meters away watching you. You're lighting a cigarette <laughs> with no idea what's about to happen. Here's the thing. You come after me online with the Antifada. I'm going to finish it. I may not start this fight, but I'm going to finish it. There was one guy who talked shit on me in 2006 on the SA forums. He told me that my shadow priest and wow wasn't optimally built. And I dedicated a scorched earth campaign to ruin this man's body and soul. And I succeeded. And you know what his name was? Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> Let's say if it, maybe it was low tax and you, you, you did end up winning in the end. <laughs> low, low tax is sort of like the German army uh, in that it's going to destroy itself eventually. Everyone knows it. There's no, there's no good ideas coming out of that thing. Uh, at some point, they will just be shivering in the cold. <laughs> You're right. And it was just pure appeasement until that moment. Exactly. I mean, I don't know. Here's the thing. It's hard to be a person, period. It's, it's hard <laughs> to be a lot of different types of people. But like a guy who was on the GameSpy forums just being like, why can't we say more slurs in 1998 with his friend Fragmaster? Then starting... The shittiest website on every level, just comedically, aesthetically, the, the back-end technology, and then having that last for 20 fucking years as your raison d'etre and your primary claim to fame and your sole economic sustenance, uh, that's a weird thing to live through. Yeah. Like, most people can't get on Twitter for a year without completely losing their mind. Like, the, the, as far <laughs> as I can tell, the last week has just been people looking at one of those carnival uh, jelly bean orbs and then going, hmm, I think 75% of them are working class. <laughs> so the fact that Lotax is, is not literally a man in the woods with antlers at this point, like, God bless him, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I, I think I'd say it was really great when I was in high school, when I was like, I don't know, 12 or 13. I thought Jeff K was really, really funny and the <laughs> their Photoshop contests were great. And I joined the essay forums like I, I knew this kid with a credit card somehow and he bought me an account. I uh, pretty quickly gravitated towards FIAD and had a, a really high negative post count. Are we fiad ships passing in the night? <laughs> did we did we call each other slurs fifteen years ago, and now are finally reconnecting in the saddest sleepless in Seattle? I know, me too. But I was I was really active between like two thousand one and two thousand five, maybe. Oh shit! So we're we're talking uh, just pink gorilla, a nice fiad, moof, bum the sad gets uh, kicked out. Corsair, Vile, Buff Stranger. Damn. LTSB. We, we got a real OG. Danny Manic. <laughs> I I actually uh inspired or was there for one of the most important something awful memes in history, which is uh when I was in high school, I would steal books from the uh I th it wasn't borders, but it was something like that, the bookstore in the mall. I, I would go in there and, and stick it down the back of my pants and walk out. And uh, one day I had done this, um, and the the manager of the store came up to me, and he's like, "Hey, hey, hey!" And I looked and I, I looked over to him and I was like really scared. And he's like, "Hey, nice shirt," because I had a something awful shirt. 
like the little grenade logo. And I was like, oh, oh, th- oh thank you. Oh, you were deep and I, in. And I like left the store. No, no, no. Okay, so important part of the story is he said, nice shirt. And then he then he saw that I was nervous and he got kind of close to me and he said, don't worry, I'm a goon too. And <laughs> Do you have I stairs did... in your house, sir? And then you went to goon camp and fucked everyone. <laughs> okay, so this is where the story is going. He said, oh, I'm a goon no. too. And I didn't know what that meant because I wasn't on the forums yet because I didn't have a credit card. Wait, but you were wearing the Something Awful Grenade Logo shirt? Yeah, you can just buy it on the front page of the site. That's, you don't need uh, to that, be on the forums. That's like the that's guys awesome. that like prospect for like the Mongol Motorcycle Club where they're like, they don't let me ride the bikes, but it's pretty cool. You can wear like <laughs> half the cut. And so years later when I was on the, on the forums, I, they, they made the essay cyclopedia, uh, like the encyclopedia of all the terms. Yeah. And the, I and I found out at that moment that I was there for the uh, the thread describing that incident is where people said we need to have a secret passphrase. Oh so, my god! <laughs> and that's where are there stairs in your house? Do you have stairs in your house? Came from they uh, mistake he mistakenly thought I was scared uh, to admit I was a goon in public, when in reality I was scared because I was stealing a book. It really is the last taboo, and it remains that way, inshallah. <laughs> you know, we talk a lot about about you know about accountability and people being responsible for their actions and, and really managing and reckoning with, with the pain you cause in the world. And it doesn't mean that you're, like, doomed forever, but it does mean that, you know, you do have to put in some effort to set things right. And I just want to ask you, uh, what have you done to sort of heal the tragic scar on the internet's history that you left with that. How good was that fucking book that we all had to deal with? Are there stairs in your house for about two decades? Everybody, welcome to Dumb and Awful. This is Brett at Willis Board. This is Rob at Dumb and Awful on Twitter. And I am Andy, the producer of the Antifada and the author of I Want to Believe, Posadas, UFOs, and Apocalypse Communism. Thank you for having me. And if I want to yell at you on Twitter, how would I do that? At Spaceprol is my Twitter name. <laughs> All right. Good, good to know. Now, now we may continue. All right. I don't know. When when I look at these wild MAGA people just just going out, really just having a good time, just MAGA rumspringa, but to no meaningful governmental effect. I I don't I feel conflicted. I'm really curious what you think because I have been unable to read the discourse since this whole uh capital thing happened because it just it it really I joked earlier, but it really does seem like people looking at the the orb of jelly beans and just going like, okay, I've identified what percent are working class by looking at their fingernails and boots, and now I have my ideology ready to respond to this. Yeah, I think that's a good critique of the way people are talking about it. And the base of Trump's support is not working class. Uh, he he had the 
highest amount of gains in this election between for people making between 100 and 200,000 dollars a year mm-hmm. which uh 66% of the country makes less than that um he gained very slightly in like the lowest income bracket like 2% but Biden also gained in that category too so income isn't class i understand this but i think it's fair to say that the vanguard of the maga movement is the petty bourgeoisie and of course there were working class people there who knows the percentages but they've aligned themselves with a petty bourgeois movement in a cross class alliance that is i don't think they're fascist but is like a fascistic kind of goal that they have but what i'm what i'm uh, kind of interested in is how their goal everyone's saying is like a coup and you know an insurrection mm-hmm. and stuff but their goal was actually if you ask them was to defend democracy because they believe they had won the election and had been stolen from them and that the Biden is going to, you know, create the dictatorship of the proletariat on January 20th. So they they were essentially being good liberals trying to defend liberal democracy. That's what was going on in their minds. I mean, I would just throw in there that uh, like liberals, their conception of democracy is one that uh, where the the benefits of empire always redound to the good guys, like those those uh, petty bourgeois. I don't believe that they're huge democracy protectors and defenders, except in the way that like the CIA protects and defends democracy abroad, which is to say, to ensure that all the resources are going to the right hands. No, they're they, like ideologically they are. They're like in actuality they were trying they were supporting a billionaire trying to overthrow democracy because I do think Biden obviously won the election and there's no real arguments against that but ideologically mm-hmm. they were they were trying to give president trump a second term and uh in the process like get rid of all the demean voting machines or something so we can have good elections if given a fair voting machine trump would win because america right. is them it always has been them right and they, you know, obviously the implication of that is the exclusion of of the people who aren't the people, like which, you know, initially that was Muslims and uh, and immigrants, uh, largely Mexicans, were the the first group scapegoated by Trump, um, and then all of the like other kind of the the anti-Semitism and anti-blackness and all that other stuff kind of follows from there. But their conception of the Volk is not like um, a, a, like a white Christian. It's a patriot. It's a MAGA person. And they just believe that the whole country is MAGA people because like no one shows up to Biden rallies. I mean, how can you be against how can you be against uh, a, a leader that gives it to the elites? How can you be against a leader that wants to bring jobs home? I mean, in that in that one, they're not terribly different from how he's uh, protecting all, children. How can you hate them? They're they're not terribly different from how all the libs reacted when Hillary lost. Like every lib I knew in a major city was like, I don't understand. Everyone was obviously for Hillary. I didn't know a single Trump voter. How could this possibly happen? And then we got four years of conspiracy theories about how it was stolen. So, like, I, I it's it's a similar uh, knee jerk response. It's just libs are terrified of action, so they just. Did a very <laughs> well, sad, sad march in January after the election. Now you're not being totally fair to the libs because there was a lot of action. <laughs> there was the the women's march, which was like the largest mass mobilization in the country's history, and there was uh and J twenty was that was more radical, uh with like a lot of anarchists and 
<clears throat> like kind of activist groups part participating in that. Uh, that wasn't quite as big as January 6th, but it was it was very effective. Like part of the reason Trump's motorcade went past empty bleachers and why there weren't that many people on the, the mall is because activists from different groups like uh, indigenous activists, environmentalists, Black Lives Matter, did lockdowns in front of the entrances for hours so people couldn't get in. And uh, then after that, there was the airport uh, blockades, which were different in different Powerful. cities. But in a lot of places, you had liberals going into, like, the, word, the term radical liberal gets thrown around, but literally, like, radical Hillary Clinton people going in and, like, blocking uh, the security checkpoints for airports. So they had to ground flights to protest the Muslim ban. So there was quite a bit of action. And I think it's kind of there's this kind of reverse logic where like the same sort of uh, energies are going into both. Uh, and one thing that really unites them, and this is something I get into in my article uh, that I wrote after the election about why there was no civil war. TFW, no civil war is the article. My kind of novel take in that piece is that both the, the radical liberals and the, the psycho MAGA people think that the other one is trying to put in a dictatorship yeah. that Biden's going to be like Stalin and Trump's going to be like Hitler. And so they have to make sure their party essentially has a dictatorship uh, to like that. Their party needs to crush the other party forever in order to prevent a dictatorship from happening. But really these parties don't want to be dictators because that would imply having some kind of like vision or goal for the country it would also increase uh, the illusion of, like, accountability. Exactly. Like right now, yeah. it's very easy to propagandize that, like, ah, oh, damn, that Mitch McConnell. Anyway, he's gone. Ah, oh, damn, that Joe Manchin. It's, you know, it's the kayfabe concept of wrestling. So I'm with you there. But really, the state wants to keep liberal democracy stable and in check. And I think that's what we're seeing now with uh, this reaction to January 6th of, of of like even even though not much happened like it, it was like spectacular and very momentous and historical but it's not like they got any they got close to like killing any politicians or and even if they had done that that wouldn't have really <laughs> like given them an opportunity to seize power so even though we didn't even come close this has become an opportunity for the state to double down on defending liberal democracy from the extremism of the people I think the problem they have going forward is there's a huge disconnect. They might want liberal democracy to continue as it is. And like, no, they don't want a dictatorship on in either direction, but they're not delivering anything for the supporters who have gotten more and more extreme because nothing is working for them. Like whatever part of the fucking political spectrum you're on, you're not looking around and going like, things are great. Things are working out fantastically for my ideals, for my people. Like no one's looking around and thinking things are good. So like, the, the extremism of the people I don't think is going to go away anytime soon. Like the tech attempts to suddenly like sweep through and gut all of the extreme voices online isn't going to fucking do much on that front. Like they've allowed it to be seated for too long. And it, either side of the aisle, I, I just feel like the extremism, extremism of the people is something they do actually need to figure out. And they have no fucking game plan. Like AOC is out here, by the way, claiming that half the house nearly died, which like should fuck off. That's so ridiculous. That's true, though, because uh, when people criticize her online, that's violence. So imagine what's showing up to her office is. <laughs> I'm sorry, do you have any thoughts on that, Andy? Well, I mean, I do. 
I I do think that uh, I don't know. I I, I guess I'll let's uh let's let's keep moving on. I I didn't have any good thoughts just then. I th- I think in general that the reaction now to it is is interesting to see. Like you said, that the state's trying to reassert that this is how they want things to work. Uh, and now we're, we're <laughs> watching every political group attempt to say action should be done while while avoiding doing the thing themselves. So, uh, you know, multiple Trump cabinet members have resigned and said, like, we should do the 25th Amendment. Not me, of course, because I've left office, but someone else. Uh, The Senate's adjourned to the 19th. Uh, They're not coming back anytime soon. And the House is talking about doing impeachment this week. Um, They're not going to do an emergency session to try to get you more stimulus. That's not on the docket. But they are going to try to do an emergency session to do impeachment. Uh, But they just realized the problem with that is... If that goes to the Senate, then the Senate is stuck doing impeachment hearings for weeks on end at the very beginning of the uh, Biden term. And so they're, now they're like, fuck, maybe that doesn't work either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. OK, so this is like another way things were reversed from four years ago. Like four years ago, you had um, Trump coming into power, promising to put his political rivals in prison. Um, and, uh, you know, he had these infrastructural promises that he never tried to do uh and it, instead he just had these like bigoted executive orders the muslim ban and um all this stuff like one after another uh like come in with this culture war smokescreen that never went away and then you had the people opposed to him believing that we were literally heading towards fascism you know i was more or less one of those people um but today you have the reverse where You've got uh, Biden coming in saying he's going to create this group to to get to get rid of extremism uh, that we've just overcome this major threat to democracy. Uh, and and so now our, our task is to protect it in some way to, like, uh, protect this this fragile new order. And um, and then you've got this huge group of freaked out Trump people who think that the socialism is about to come in on January 20th. So again, all of these, even though so much of what Biden has been talking about uh, as president elect has been material things like bailouts and getting rid of student debts and making sure everyone gets a vaccine. um, Suddenly we're all talking about a culture war again uh, of like, how can the people who won the election defend themselves in the culture war? Uh, and usually when like the left is, is, uh, surging, there's this talk about the silent majority of conservatives who are like good people who are like quiet and don't, you know, uh, who don't come out to the street. Now it's kind of the opposite. Like now the the liberals and the left are the silent majority and the Trump people are the psychotic radicals. How do you how do you square the you group out the left and liberals and as like a silent majority? How do you square that with the the fact that like both I don't see them acting as as a block like uh, this summer you know we're in New York and and we're out at the the BLM stuff and first of all I didn't see a ton of liberals I did see them posting on Facebook about all the terrible property damage that happened after every night of like running and getting you didn't see by liberals cops. at BLM. No, not really. Uh, the not the, the people in my the people the, the ones in in New York. I don't know how much I want to say here, uh, but the the ones in Central Manhattan, the ones in in uh, 
Brooklyn. The the liberals in my community were decrying the rioting and and the fact that protesters, rioters weren't they were looting instead of engaging with the process. The the people I saw on the street were for the most part people that seemed more left than your MSNBC crew. But I don't know uh, what what actions were you at and what was the vibe there? Well, I went to a lot of different kinds of things, uh, but the big marches, like uh, the I mean, like we I also went, went to the after dark ones for what it's worth. If that, yeah. if I can euphemistically yeah. phrase that to our audience. well, obviously the more riotous ones. I don't even know if you could call them left because it's like kids from marginal neighborhoods like looting and setting dumpster fires and like like fighting the police slash doing blockades and just running amok like i i think in a way like obviously those are these are like proletarian kids uh and they were politicized by the police murders but yeah i would say uh and and they were like the vanguard of the movement like they they pushed everything forward but yeah i think maybe you're of... not giving them enough uh credit for ideology because I, I this is just, this is just where i was at it they seemed very politically engaged along lines that weren't just uh over policing and police brutality like it, they, they did seem to have um you know this is just like as much as you can glean being shoulder to shoulder but it, it felt like uh they were aware that america is fucked for these number of reasons maybe you can only count it on one hand but that's a level of class consciousness that i don't know made me vaguely hopeful and represented i think an above mean uh understanding of our political system but i i again that's just my own lived experiences they were uh, more like hoodlums that were making dumpster fires where you were at well uh if if they're hoodlums i, I mean that in a positive sense and if they're not ideological or not leftist. I also mean that in a positive sense. I I think that th that, that was the the proletarian wing of the movement. Um, and then I, I think the mass the mass movement, like, uh, you know, like the the really big marches, um, and like the bike blockade, the the bike rides, and all that stuff. That mm -hmm. the vanguard of that was liberals. A hundred percent. No, no disagreement there. Yeah, <laughs> so, no, I got you there. So yeah, that's how I kind of divide it. But then, but then you know, you you kind of questioned this idea that the liberals and the left are the the silent majority now. Um, obviously, the vast majority of that block are are liberals, and then the the self declared socialists, I think, largely do tail liberalism. Um, and like for example, uh, abolish ICE was uh, something that. Uh, was started by Sean McElwee, who's a, a liberal, and then leftists. Controversial um, figure in in New York, certainly. But yeah. Well, I mean, the, good yeah, actions. He, he came up with that slogan, and that slogan kind of inspired these like blockades and camps all around the country that was populated by leftists. Uh, and then with the, uh, the the airport blockades we we're talking about earlier, liberals called that stuff. Like I think Make the Road called it in New York, and then leftists kind of pushed it forward by. Uh, like staying in the airports longer and that sort of thing. So how much of that do you think is is good or helpful versus uh, maybe having less utility? Like like when you say that uh, your conception of the left is sort of a, a vanguard to liberal actions, does that mean that we should be uh, attempting to decouple that? Or do you, do you think that there needs to be more 
uh, left liberal hybridization, and we need to do as they're saying, which is like, you know, look out for our more left leaning reps, like co collaborate on actions with uh, the the pussy hat people. Uh, show up at the women's march and don't make it about you. Just keep your leftist shit to yourself and and let them know that you're part of the movement. Like, what it, what is the dynamic? What is the preferred dynamic in your mind between this left vanguard and the liberal base that you think it represents? Yeah, I think if you had asked me four years ago, I I would have said yeah, go to the the pussy hat march and like with flyers or whatever and try to radicalize it, but increasingly. I've become convinced that there does need to be uh, a schism between the the revolution, let's say the revolutionary left and and liberalism and the reformist left. Uh, Walk so, me through that. Yeah, I, so, I'm I'm, so, I'm new to, I'm new to this stuff. Like, um, you know, I, I, it takes me a while to read books, so it it doesn't always <laughs> come quickly. When you it just even like, what are these groups? What do they mean? And and how do they do that? Well, I think there's there's like conception of the left as we need to come to power in some way to make a a more just society. Um, mm -hmm. So, for example, the like the the vision of DSA having success might be electing more candidates who are accountable to the DSA, who want to do a Green New Deal sort of thing, and eventually control the economy more and more to the point where workers have more say, the the economy is democratized in some sense, everyone gets everything they need. This is like the kind of social democratic course that um, when it comes down to it, I think like a lot of anarchists agree with that, a lot of communists agree with that. Uh, but I think a, a revolutionary vision today has a very different perspective on how to win power than like the the de social democratic vision of the second international or the Bolshevik vision, uh, even of, of like, you know, seizing power and creating a proletarian dictatorship. I think it has to do more with autonomy. You mentioned earlier the DSA as a sort of, uh, nascent isn't the word, maybe emerging. It's not a party, but, but political entity. And, and you said, you know, maybe you, uh, just run representatives that are accountable to the DSA, and through that, we get a little bit more for workers, we increase some class consciousness, that sort of thing. And, and my question, somewhat embarrassing, I don't like, I, I don't, I just don't have the answers to all this stuff. And something I've been thinking about for a while is like, what does a rep who is accountable to the DSA look like? Because I do agree that, like, I mean, the, the PSL is currently too busy policing people's likes to, uh, uh, go after the problems in their higher ranks as they and should just, by the way yeah it, it's here's the thing first get the people liking shit posts then get the sex pests is my understanding of lenin um so dsa probably is the biggest like left-ish thing going and i'm a little bit concerned that they it feels, please disabuse me of this because I could sleep so much easier at night. Uh, like we're card carrying members of the worst DSA chapter. And even still, like we have some faith that like this is probably a, a useful thing. But I feel like they're in this loop now where they need more electoral legitimacy. And so the way they do that is by making sure they don't alienate their early reps. 
So like you're you're the squad people, you're, you're local council people. You talk about Sean McElwee, who literally ran a more left challenger at, out of their race using bogus polling materials. Like, is there any concern that the, the DSA actually doesn't have any ability to check the reps they're supposed to be representing them or that they launched because they need those reps for electoral legitimacy. And when push comes to shove, they're always just going to concede to the more soaked down base. Well, and I don't know a lot about how the DSA works or what they mean by accountability, but I know that I've got a DSA state representative in, in my district, uh, the state senator. And shortly after coming into office, she um, sided with the landlords, uh, a, 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 a landlord lobbying group called Circle, um, and, mm-hmm. and, and these community organizing groups uh, that were, you know, uh, I, I don't want to uh, speak too poorly of them because a lot of them do good work, but they occasionally do side with the capitalist class over, over working class people. Um, and she just took the wrong position on this this one issue that affected me and the and my neighbors, uh, which was law law. And uh, the way she was held accountable in this situation was that basically our tenants union and people from the DSA kind of had to come out and support these other um, these other tenants issues, these other protests. Uh, because there was a perception that we were just gentrifiers who didn't care about anything, and um, we were standing in the way of like people of color having good manufacturing jobs. Running that damn rep put you in a hole, then. So you had to play catch up because the well, it's because she didn't really she didn't on. know what it, it wasn't. I think she just didn't understand the lay of the land politically, as far as I can tell, and she got talked out of doing the right thing because and part of it is because like our tenants union um in the past has represented themselves as petty bourgeois and a lot of the people in the tenants union are petty bourgeois because they would say like we live in lofts we're small business owners how we we turned that around was we started emphasizing that we in in my building specifically we do have a lot of working class people uh or it is like a working class building it's not entirely white and might be like slightly majority white and organizing people to go out and support these other tenant struggles that we our group had not done in the past and through that we kind of showed salazar like that we were real people we were tenants damn we, named i was waiting for the name check <laughs> oh yeah I, no, come I, on, huh? I mean who who couldn't figure it out but right uh I guess, you know, so I'm not in the DSA, so I wasn't holding her accountable as a DSA person, but I know a lot of other people in the DSA were, they did bring up these issues. It was, it's just difficult because you, you know, the DSA are, are outsiders to that political machinery and they, it's very opaque how it happens that this lobbying group can like get all of these democratic, uh, operatives on their side against tenants. I mean, that seems like a concern, though, that they they that it's so quick and easy yeah, that to, to to immediately convince people to vote against things. And maybe even even in, like let's assume all the intentions are great, that they can be immediately convinced to vote the wrong way. You're the socialist backed representative, and it takes you no time at all to side with the landlords. I, I want the best for the DSA. And the fact that they have a lot of heat right now is probably 
very good and it, it's a, an organizing node for a lot of people but like the 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 world in which the dsa is a powerful electoral check on on the the labor reps that they're sending to congress and our capitalist system like i just i have a hard time getting there and i mean this with 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 no like i'd sound cynical now but i truthfully genuinely want to understand the mechanisms by which i can place my full faith in dsa electoralism because i think it'll make me a, a happier person just day to day well because it just sounds like we're or- what what the DSA is essentially at now is just sending better people who then just get caught in the same machinery. And it's like, yeah, the the intentions are better. Maybe they are actually like very good people who mean well, but like they're still trapped in the same machinery. And it's the, the, the constant slow fucking uh, capture that happens in in every government organization is still going to occur. They're still surrounded by people who are not there their constituency they're still constantly talking to lobbyists who know how to lie very effectively to get what they want exactly like, that, hey. that's what i'm saying and and um so, so my my broader point was that even though like ideologically the right thing to do is decide with tenants over landlords how it played out was the landlords actually had to organize and emphasize that their position was a worker's position uh and show that by going out to to actions um, and like, you know, and showing that we weren't all white petty bourgeois people in order to kind of break through that facade. So no matter how like ideologically good the people that the DSA put up for you, there needs to be like a real movement of workers expressing themselves as workers in order for them to be able to, to make like, uh, the right call for workers because I don't know, it's you're having to do action to convince your own reps to vote the right way, then that seems like it's a hopeless cause to ever affect larger fucking changes or votes. Yeah. If you have a large group of workers who are ideologically uh, on the same page in in terms of uh, increasing their quality of life and, and acting as some sort of collective unit or Vanguard, what exactly is the purpose of having some mealy mouth middle management rep in the capitalist Congress that you have to like keep on the right path like a toddler lest they fall into the pool and drown in ideology. Well, I think the use of it could be at crucial moments they'll intervene on the side of the people by like, for example, uh, like if a lot of people get arrested in like a uprising, maybe those politicians could get them out or like put pressure to get them lesser sentences or something like that. Has that happened? I mean, I, did, I, I genuinely, I didn't see that at... Um... BLM mostly it was just leftist crowdsourcing bail for the people that they happen to know. Sort of like rich get richer. The people that were networked well enough got uh, bailed. But were there were there any big name DSA politicians that were bailing people out? I remember when I was at uh, telling on myself here when when I was at the new school uh, for an art degree, um, our dean actually came down to occupy the night that NYPD was and I always I always fucking get angry at this because they they claim NYPD hasn't used tear gas in x number of years they 100% used it when Bloomberg was clearing occupy with the fucking construction equipment the sanitation equipment they they launched a tear gas canister on Lafayette and Duane Street that night check the fucking footage I was there I saw it first <laughs> wait when, but like when, what protest was that that was the night uh, uh occupy got thrown out of the park 
uh, the, the, the first big movement was to okay. Thomas Paine Park, that fountain there where people recollected and decided uh, where to go. At that point, the crowd was pretty feisty after having the fucking library destroyed. And yeah. uh, one canister went out at Lafayette and Duane, and one car charged the crowd uh, at the corner wow. of I never heard Chambers. that before. I wasn't there, but yeah, that's surprising. Yeah, it's because if, here's the thing. I say it, and then it vanishes into ether because there's no accountability for cops. <laughs> but all this is to say, uh, that night, the the dean or the president, whatever he was, of the new school, a fucking extremely expensive liberal institution, was down bailing his students out of jail, uh, just going one precinct to another, just doing what he could to get people out. And I thought that was pretty fucking dope for a millionaire liberal um, during BLM, were there DSA politicians doing similar things, or it, were they talking about it? Or well, nobody in BLM in New York was really getting bail, to my knowledge, because there's, there, I think they got rid of cash bail and and like the, I, but there were okay. So actually, people who were being held under sus suspicion of rioting, which could mean anything or, or looting, I mean, were being held for multiple days, mm -hmm. and uh politicians in general, I don't know if they're DSA people or what, were putting a lot of pressure on police to release them in a reasonable amount of time. Um, so there was that pressure from progressives and Democrats and stuff. I think if you if you elect like people like AOC and, and Salazar and, and you know, they they're gonna have to suck to a certain extent to get anything done to do they're gonna have to play the game, obviously. Um, but if they can be activated in the right moment to defend, like, for example, if there was ever an uprising, like, uh, like what happened, uh, last week, uh, from the left, and I shouldn't say if there was ever, cause it did happen this summer, like people, they, they breached the white house gates this summer. Right. And so if, if you have people in the democratic party who are elected to not immediately denounce that and say, go after these people and charge them as terrorists and push back against that narrative, that's a good thing. But ultimately, that doesn't matter unless there is, like, the people I, I would go one moving. step further. My standard now is if you're not going to do what some of the Republican reps did, where they literally opened the back doors for people to get into the Capitol, that's, that's what I want from my politicians. If the right can get it, then that's what I want to see from the DSA people. So that's my standard. Is AOC, if you fucking come up to the Capitol, BLM makes it the Capitol, and like, you know, if they push all the way up, is she going to open a door for somebody? Or is she just, we're just going to wait and hope she, she, she argues that like, maybe not life in prison, just like 10 years for this. Right. Yeah. You, you can only expect them to do so much. Um, but I, I think are... that's sort of my problem. The idea that I can only expect them to do so much and that so much does not involve constantly fighting for me. Why are we the only bosses that can't be assholes to our workers? <laughs> like, like, uh, like we're paying them and they work for me directly, but I can't criticize them at all. No boss in the world would take that. But the proletariat boss goes like, well, you know, in a few years, they might give a nice speech about getting you out of prison one day. Why can't you criticize them? It's violence, apparently. Yeah, I mean, that tweet was stupid, but whatever. Like, I, they're politicians. They know... They, I think they, they know what what they've gotten themselves into, and people are going to critique them. And like Jimmy Dore does suck. I don't think he's being violent by yelling on YouTube, but he's a very um, silly man. <laughs> I think I I understand AOC's position more than I understand his. Like 
She's a Democratic politician. She has to play the game. She has to try to get the committee seats. She has to win allies and all that shit. She's she's accountable more to uh, the DSA and to the Democratic Party than she is to, to yelling YouTube man. Here is my question. Is the DSA ever going to alienate? This I don't mean this about AOC in particular. It's more a large thing, right? It, it's this idea of like, you know, it, the the strategy that you prescribe for AOC and a lot of like left politicians is one that like it feels like it works for thee, right? But like, should that also work for me? Like, if the best thing for our reps to do is play the game, accrue seniority on committees, like get elected, do that sort of shit, then why am I telling? average everyday leftists to be anything other than a democrat like if it's good for aoc why don't we just all become progressive democrats and push as many aocs as possible into the party and then we can all play the game and then we can get the the win condition eventually because we'll all be holding uh congress accountable to workers like is, is that is, is that the game then i think some people think that that's not what i think i i don't think like, some people think that yeah, we should be running a lot. Oh, but you just described AOC's and... strategy as in, in that line. So well, I'm, I'm wondering, is in, it one of those know, things where once you're in, you should do it a certain way, but until you're yeah. in, you should do it opposite. I mean, if your job is you're an apparatchik for the Democratic Party, you should uh, try to subvert that on any any way you can on the side of the people. But th- but we don't to... want them to subvert it though because we want them to be our rep in the Democratic Party. If they try uh, going against the Democratic Party, that inhibits their ability to get the committee appointments and seniority they need to actually down the line play the game, right? Right, but you can you can make the argument that through like building the squad into a more powerful force, you are capable of larger levels of subversion. But again, so like, in this period you're, you're right now, me, in this, I, I mean, we both have media uh, uh, much smaller than yours, but we both have media platforms. Should we, as a, a matter of praxis, make sure to soften our blows when it comes to the squad's instant, immediate case uh, actions? Because if we develop them into a larger force, the time in which we were kid gloves on them will be forgotten. And once they're ready, they'll become accountable to us. No. I, you should say whatever you think about. I mean, I I wish we could say what we think should happen to politicians, but that. Uh, <laughs> but, yes. Um. Well, I think that uh, you know, my position is nothing good can happen through Congress. Like, we're not going to get Medicare for all. At we're not we're not going to get it without a revolution, or without something like really close to revolution. That gets the capitalist class so scared that yeah. they push through things that are now uh, only carrots that they hold out in front of us so we can vote uh, for them, for their, you know, for whichever party. Uh, we're never going to get the carrot. We're never going to get Medicare for all. Um, and and uh, so, like... Because what's standing in the way are these massive healthcare companies, and this is obvious that there's only a handful of politicians who are willing to take them on, and they're multiplying too slowly for them to take them on in any time in the next few years. So, like mm-hmm. all of this handrying about why can't we just vote on Medicare for all right now, and that'll get things moving in the right direction, 
is so naive because there's no parliamentary procedures that are going to make it happen. We have to make it happen uh, if that's what we want. Or maybe we want something way bigger than Medicare for all. Maybe we want to I mean, get yeah, rid of like uh, maybe we want to smash the state, for example. Yes, I agree with that. I would just only say the only the, the, the argument for forcing it is the idea that you radicalize more people off of that. That, that forcing you to, or forcing some amount of people who are engaged to recognize that those people do not have your interests at heart in any way, shape, or form, and you will not get this out of them. Like, force you to look at, in the eye, how bad the situation is. Because a, a, in order to do any of those other things, we just need more people, right? Like, we, we don't have anywhere close to a mass movement. Uh, I, I, I feel like we're not close enough, uh, even just numbers-wise, to effectuate any of these things outside of the state system yet which i would love to see any of those things happen but like it and maybe that's just not a tactic that works for that but like that's one where it's like i get that argument of force people to recognize it and see how many more of them you can peel off as a result yeah and i think that argument makes sense to the extent that you can create a situation that demonstrates the limits of what's possible within this mm -hmm. system I don't think forcing no. a vote is going to do that because it's going to allow a lot of Democrats to say they support Medicare for all, and then they'll find an, an excuse on some level to not do it. Like Manchin says he won't do it, and so now it's a no-go in the Senate or something like that. Like the, this is we were going to talk about weed legalization. This is something that happens over and over again in New York, where all the Democrats say they support it, and then somehow they find some little reason to not do it. And so it never happens because they don't actually want to do it. Oh, yeah. No, on the weed side, uh, it's Jesus. Yeah. In New York, what keeps happening on that front is the the, the current fight now that because what, what you described is exactly how it's worked in New York up until the last few years. Now that the IDC is out, the problem that we're having is Cuomo still wants to handle it as a patronage system. He loves his projects. He want he still wants he wants any legalization to run as patronage because the current medical system in New York, which is similar to Florida, is only so many companies are allowed in and they absolutely handed out the licenses as a means of getting like kickbacks and things like that. And so neither system is very good as a result, but it worked very effectively for the people in charge to get a fuckload of money and donations out of it. And so he's trying to do that again. And now that there's no IDC to go like, you know, we're just not comfortable with this. He's it, the point is being forced more consistently. I, New Jersey actually might be a good example of this too. What you're talking about is so what's happened in New Jersey is they they finally got on the ballot, right? They exactly what you described. The Dems claim they for they're for it. It comes up for a vote over and over and over again. And the fucking Jersey legislature can't figure out how to do it. So finally, they just give up entirely and say, like, we'll punt it to the people. They'll, we'll put it on the ballot. They'll pass it. It'll be a constitutional amendment. Once that passes, then we'll be forced to write a law putting the regulatory framework over the top of it. And that's how we'll finally get legalization, because we are incapable of doing this for you. And so they put it on the ballot. It passed in November. And we, they still haven't put a regulatory framework on top of it. They, they fought and fought and fought. And then finally, both legislatures agreed on a bill. And now the governor's holding it up. Fucking Murphy. So right now in New Jersey, it is technically constitutionally legal to smoke weed. But no one is legally allowed to sell it to you if you don't have a medical card because they have not figured out the fucking system in place. And the reason they haven't figured out the system is because at the goddamn 11th hour, Governor Murphy went, 
you know what? I don't like that there's not big enough penalties on kids who are caught with weed. There should be some way to police them more aggressively, even though that goes against the whole fucking point of reducing the amount of police interactions in oppressed neighborhoods, right? That is what he's trying to hold it up for. And so now we're in this limbo where he tried to punt it back and the the, uh, the, the two legislative branches uh, negotiated for a week. And then I think they all came to the same conclusion as well and said, basically, go fuck yourself, Murphy. You can veto it and we'll blame you and everybody in the state will know why they don't have legal weed or you can fucking pass it. But we're not giving something to the cops because at every step in this, the reason, same way with healthcare, the reason why it does not pass is because sooner or later, the on the healthcare side, the healthcare companies come in and pay people off. And on the weed side, the cop unions come in and they say like, Hey, the cop unions, the prison unions, and a few other uh, associated security people like that come in and throw money around and say like, you better give us something if you're going to pass this. And so they get scared off and that's what's happening again in New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Like the, the fact that the fact that, uh, Murphy had been like, he, he kind of put himself off as like the biggest supporter of of putting through legalization immediately and then mm -hmm. just like last year uh a handful of state legislatures suddenly had uh had reservations at the last moment that oh maybe weed shops are gonna hurt black communities so this would be like racist for us to do he he comes out at the last moment and says actually we need to make sure police are still able to harass uh black kids you know not in those yep. words um but By the way, can I just throw out there just as, as a quick aside, Andy, um, I don't know if you caught this uh, being New York, but Maya Wiley, one of the candidates for uh, the the mayoral election that that like, oh, we if you have a weed shop, it'll hurt black communities. That form of like weaponized ID poll um, against like basic justice reforms. She literally said uh, New York. You know, we're on ranked choice voting now. We've, we've passed it. We're going to do it, right? Maya Wiley, who's running for mayor, said ranked choice voting is inherently ableist and racist against the black community because it's a more complex uh, voting style that that tends to accommodate higher education, mostly white voters. And that's why we need to go back to the Democratic Party control stalemate that is the New York City Board of Elections prior to ranked choice voting. <laughs> yeah, and this is it actually... Breaks, it's fucking so cynical. It's like, how do people not see this? But God, it breaks my heart. Sorry, that's just this, a quick this, aside this when you said this that. This has happened before. We used to have ranked choice voting in New York uh, until a, a couple of communists, members of the Communist Party were elected in the 1940s and early 1950s, there was two members of the council. One of them was definitely in the CP. Uh, the other one was uh, maybe a socialist or something. Um, and they were able to get in through this, a, a ranked choice kind of system. And they put a stop to that in the, uh, I think in the early 50s, um, basically by using the same rhetoric that this is unfair <laughs> to the majority of people. Uh, and, and so now the idea uh, now, now, uh, trying to push something like this again, which will allow more socialist candidates or, or candidates from fringe parties to come into power, is being shown as a a threat because it threatens the center of the Democratic Party. Yep. To hear you fucking rank choice voting check some communists from like the '40s and city council is like what a treat. So that thank you for that.
Yeah, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but uh, it's a it's no. A that really would be too much, honestly. Guy. If you remembered his name, it would be offense. It would be showing off. <laughs> <laughs> but that's just that's awesome that you're pulling like the the communist rep from Park Slope, 1941. <laughs> <laughs> that fucking slaps. I'll look it up. Peter Caccioni. Pete. Yeah. Oh, he that's um he gave birth to the Red Scare Pod. <laughs> <laughs> No, but yeah, now they're doing uh, the same sort of thing on the weed side. Why I brought up the the weed thing is just because there there's all these obvious things that everybody wants. You know, obviously legalization of weed's very popular. You'd have to be a total freak to argue against it. But the Democrats always find a reason to put it off. You know, yep. And that's just how it's going to be with everything. And increasingly, people know that. Increasingly, everyone knows that the system is illegitimate. And it's not going to do anything for us. It is only managing the decline. We can only hope that things are a little bit better, a little bit less brutal as everything gets worse and worse and more precarious and more and dangerous. And all of their utopian fantasies of, you know, the sharing economy or, uh, you know, colonizing Mars and all of all of this tech stuff. Nobody believes in that shit. Um, there's no real vision for the future other than this uh, managed decline. So I think what what revolution looks like now or what like building socialism looks like now is not uh, within the political system. It's outside of it. It's about revolution revolutionizing the way that we live in order that we can be strong enough to to fight against it inevitably when they try to bring us back under state control. You know, and that sounds like kind of crazy. What does that look like? Is this a dual power situation? Is this mutual aid? Like what specifically? Well, how are you? Mutual aid is a good way this? to look at it because, you know, like I, I don't want to idealize what happened too much because uh, it because uh, essentially it was people filling the void of what the state was capable to do or what they had the money or the logistics to do. Yeah. Um, but that's just kind of what naturally happens is <clears throat> in, in these disastrous situations, people kind of instinctively try to take care of one another and share their resources. And if everybody's out of work, people kind of have to adjust um, to, to figure out how to create some sort of stability in that situation. It doesn't, mutual aid, I think, make, puts too much of, a, of like an ideological veneer on it, like as if everybody is suddenly an anarchist. That's not what I'm saying. Since I do believe that we are in this process of, of decline, that it is going to be, you know, quicker or slower, depending on how competent the politicians are and how, how competent the bureaucrats are, uh, we are going to see more and more the emergence of real communities um, brought together by the challenges posed by that decline. And those those people are going to understand the state not as, as out to help them, but as uh, uh, at best someone who can like provide some resources um, because the incompetence is glaring. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like this year did more for that than anything else. It convinced people that you, e even people I know who are not politically engaged at all are 100% convinced that there's no reason to ever give your resources to the state because they will not come for you uh, to help you in any way, shape, or form in the middle of like a fucking pandemic. Like they're, they're going to do nothing for you. They will not save you. They will not assist you. You're kind of on your own. Like that is the feeling regular people have right now in the system. So it is a, I mean, a depressing time, but a good time for developing those networks because now people are far more open to it than they've ever been. Right. And it's, it's essential 
that it happens and it's you know easier said than done yes uh but like any vision of socialism involves neighbors and coworkers getting together and building uh not just institutions not just voting blocks but real communities um where people are willing to to fight for each other even if they have really different cultures and political differences and stuff like that so although mm-hmm. this sounds kind of like i don't know utopian or anarchistic or something it's necessary in any kind of socialist vision is is the building of these kind of grassroots communities and and so what i'm saying is that instead of this constitutive vision of of these communities or you know workplaces or or you know organs of the party uh coming together to form a voting block or to 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 form a you know, a revolutionary force um that actually the goal is to pull away from the centers of power instead of occupying the capital you can occupy the the logistics of capitalism uh where which is like what really sustains everything uh so it's a it's a different vision of how a revolution can happen that you can think of as destituent instead of constituent <laughs> this show advocates sort of a gumby leftist get five approach which is essentially uh you know read all the books you can to help make you be a better organizer i guess but at the end of the day fred hampton wasn't killed because he had the best theory he was killed because he could point on a spot on the ground and know that five to 50 of his comrades would show up and do action with him and i think at the end of the day if you can get as a communist each person should as their primary focus be trying to get just five people that are politically coordinated enough. Maybe you need to radicalize scare quotes them a little bit to get them on the page. But at some point, everyone should have five people that they could point to and say, I can do actions with these people. Um, yeah, and that's so great. I'm very much I'm it's, and you know what, that's a thing that you don't have to join a party to do. Yeah. You don't have to agree with your favorite podcast or live stream to do. Uh, you can be anywhere in America there's no particular timeline. I don't think radical socialism is coming to America in the next fucking 10 years. So why don't you do what the people in the fucking 30s, 50s, 70s, 90s did and just set the table a little bit better for the people that come after you? Uh, that is very much our perspective here on, on this show. But one last thing that I, I this is indulgent, but I have to ask you um, to indulge me. Can you explain in as much good faith as possible. I know not everybody loves them, but can you just explain what Trotskyism is? What does that <laughs> what does that mean? Because it's it's a little like Ashley Simpson where everyone hates them despite them giving basically fine performances their entire life. <laughs> Did some run a little long were, were some of them a little uh out of tune, a little discordant? Yes, but god damn it, they got up on that stage and they worked it. And why does everyone hate Trotsky? Well, I don't think everyone hates Trotsky. Um, I think Trotskyism has gotten a really bad rap because it's it's known for its hypersectarianism, uh, like weirdos selling newspapers, um, and uh, and and like you deal with a Trotskyist group like the ISO, and they take like kind of a conservative position in a certain struggle, uh, or they're like tailing it and they're being opportunistic. Um, but Trotskyism at its core uh, at, was uh, basically, you know, there's, there's Trotskyism um, that, that means different things at different times. But 
really it formed around the permanent uh the uh sorry the um the transitional program which was the the program of the the fourth international founded in uh in 37 38 going into uh world war ii and it was a a a, a strategy for um communists who were in minoritarian positions so communists who were shut out of the communist party the stalinist communist party to earn uh influence and political power in workplaces and in political parties and in a variety of different situations um and to uh use that influence to steer the course of what they saw as an inevitable proletarian revolution that they thought would come out of the course of World War II. And they believed, as Leninists believed, that the crisis of revolution, of, of humanity, of the proletariat, is a crisis of leadership. And Trotsky was going to be the right leader because he had you know, all of this uh, great analysis of permanent revolution and of, of, of the Russian revolution and Russian history. Um, so the idea was to put, install Trotsky as the leader of, of a proletarian revolution, which didn't happen. And, uh, and Trotsky died, um, long before it didn't happen. So, yeah, he, he died in the same way that someone in an officer involved shooting dies in the passive tense. <laughs> so Trotskyism after world war II uh, doesn't really have a whole lot of coherence and, that, so that's when you lead to this. There were splits before that, but even after when the Fourth Inter- International reformed after World War II, there was split after split after split to the point where you get Trotskyists who take like, you know, all every side of the Syrian civil war, including ISIS or like critical support for ISIS. <laughs> so it doesn't really mean much except for uh, a, a fundamental agreement on the spirit of the works of Trotsky and his analysis of the Soviet Union. But even that, you know, people read in different ways. So I, I don't is think anyone should rep- be too hard on Trotsky. It's just like, it's just a dying tendency that I think the transitional program and, and that view of history still has some valuable things. Um, but, you know, anyway. Well, what are the valuable things out of that? They're no worse than Stalinists. Or... I mean, they're, they're better than Stalinists, honestly. Trotskyists better than Stalinists. <laughs> the ones who aren't here. Stalinists, I mean. What are what are the things to take from Trotsky then? Yeah, I just encourage people to read the transitional program. I think there's some really practical things in there that you can do if you are like say you you work somewhere and you know like you're in a union maybe and you know like two or three other people in the union who have your politics. Uh the transitional program kind of gives you a guide on how to uh have outsized influence. Word. And then I think the idea be... of permanent revolution is also pretty good too, but that's like another story. <laughs> well, it, it, uh, we, we can close on this. I'm just curious because we, we joke about Trotsky a lot here. Um, so is that like, is that the entryism thing? Like if, if me and my four homies have similar uh, political projects and we're in an organization, we should go for it. Um, and, and also you mentioned permanent revolution. What does that mean? Like you threw that out there as like, eh, that, that might be something. What, what, what does that mean? Because to me, as a Hearts of Iron 4 player, my primary understanding of Trotsky is that if you spec into his national focus tree, you get permanent revolution, <laughs> which gives you a Cassis belly on Poland, which I'm taking 100% of the time. Um, well, uh, 
I don't know what that last comment means. Um, well, per- it, it's okay. <laughs> yeah. Permanent revolution is the idea that, uh, like, it, it comes from 1905, from his understanding of the the Russian uprising of 1905, where um, uh, there's an internal and external aspect of that uprising. It was it, it failed, you know, it was put down, but mm-hmm. uh, internally society had changed uh, as a result of the revolution. So there's a permanent effect of the revolution internally, and um, it had reverberated externally to the rest of the world. So there's an international effect. So although that moment had been put down, there was this permanent change internally and externally uh, that couldn't be suppressed just through the suppression of the of the uprising itself or through the jailing of the leaders. So uh, Trotsky uh, basically saw um, that moment as a part of a permanent revolutionary process that uh, continues uh, uh, the the kind of vibrations of it continue being felt over the years. You know, the the organizations, the Soviets that were found in the course of 1905 grow and change. The, the Bolshevik party grows and changes. And then you lead to something like 1917. So it's the idea that these cycles of struggle, um, although they, they come and go, uh, they continue to create revolutionaries in their wake and revolutionary situations in their wake that don't just affect the the places where they happen, but reverberate outwards. Um, and he saw it as a process that will eventually lead to world revolution. Um, and uh, so uh, uh, I like this concept because it's it's it, it helps us understand that like what happens in Chile. What happens in Hong Kong, uh, or you know the Arab, uh, not the Arab Spring, but like the the uprisings in like Lebanon and Iraq and Iran, um, although they're they're like very different, have like very different reasons. Um, there's something going on there that they all kind of like look alike and kind of rhyme with each other and have similar compositions of who's who's involved in them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that helps lend this international perspective, and also helps us remember that even though. The George Floyd uprising was kind of put down and recuperated in certain ways. The people who participated in it uh, are forever changed and know things now that they didn't know before. Um, oh, yeah. And that's, I think, why we see from like uh, from Occupy to Black Lives Matter to the George Floyd uprising, you see this rising moment where the next the next uh, struggle begins at where the last one left off. Um, so I think it's pretty likely that the next struggle that we see in the United States uh, from the left or from the, the proletariat is going to begin with like the burning of a government building because that was what was so spectacular from the George Floyd uprising. And then that's yeah. going to reach like a new level and then it'll be put down and it'll come back again. Um, so... That's like kind of my insurrectionary reading of uh, Trotsky's Permanent Revolution. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. The The last time we talked to, we, we <laughs> love him, but the last time we talked to, we talked to an insurrectionary anarchist and they were like, things you can do right now, take your chewing gum and stick it in an ATM. And I was like, is this part of a larger political project? And they're like, yes. And I was like, all right, then. Who is that? Um, 
uh, a, a very nice lady out of out in Portland who, in fairness, deals with uh, fascist shit on a day to day basis in a way that's a lot more intense than I think. If you want to talk about like white nationalists being an immediate problem in your community, uh, yeah, Oregon will do that to you. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, Things th- are way different said, out there. I, way more real out there. I, w- I will close by simply asking you, somewhat related. Um, you know, it's January 2021. It's been a wild uh, 4, 40, 400, 4,000 years. Uh, we, we haven't yet got socialism. What is the thing that our listeners can do right now on a small scale that would at least I, – I think a lot of people right now, especially with COVID, feel like trapped. They feel powerless. You know, that I know a lot of people that are reaching out to – organizations in their area various parties and you know that you, you can meet on zoom and you can get out there with your mask but a lot of people feel like they're they're sort of limited right now what can people do what would you advise people to do now to set themselves up for the most productive sort of biden term possible is there anything is it just fucking self-care and not going insane online is it joining an org is it you know forming a tenants union what can people do right now in your estimation that would sort of alleviate some of the pain of our particular uh, ideological system yeah i mean all of the above like if there's an organization that you're even a little bit sympathetic towards like uh like maybe you, you don't consider yourself a democratic socialist but you kind of you think that there's good stuff going on in DSA, join DSA and and there's like a communist caucus in there, and emerge or essentially communists. So you know, may, maybe that's something you could do. Um, or if you don't like that, you can try to make contact with the anarchists or with uh, some Trotskyist sect or something. If that's something you think you'd like to do, um, I'd say you know go for it, give it a try. Maybe you'll meet some people. Maybe it'll be a waste of time. Uh, but uh, yeah, you you mentioned like self-care, like that shouldn't be looked down upon either. You know, the stronger you are, the stronger you're going to be for your family and for your neighbors and for the people that you love. So you should try to get yourself healthy and strong and like emotionally prepared for things to get worse and scary because that's inevitably going to happen. Uh, And yeah, if you can organize a tenants union or just talk to your neighbors, just get in contact with them. So when something warrants everyone being pissed off at the t- the landlord at the same time, you can get in touch with them and like lead the charge to have a meeting or like make demands, something like that. Um, you know, yeah, you can do some mutual aid thing just to like meet your neighbors, just to see like who lives in your neighborhood, who needs to get food in the morning. Uh, you just, just like becoming more, a part of uh your block and your neighborhood um instead of you know uh going deeper and deeper into like online culture and like uh uh like fictional sectarian struggles i think is is what you got to do and um there is no right answer there is no one thing you can do there's no party you can join the party doesn't exist um but uh also one thing i'll I'll say is uh the right thing to do is often like you have to look to yourself and see what's in your self interest uh i think too much of what people imagine is the right thing to do politically is like well i'm not i'm white so i i I don't 
like I, I don't know what's good. I just all I can do is be an ally. Um, and I think that's the wrong way to look at it. I think everyone needs to, on some level, figure out what is in their own interest. Um, besides, you know, making the most kind of money possible. Uh, like what's in your interest as a person. Um, and usually the answer to that is something politically radical because usually, because as people we need like love and connection and, uh, we need to struggle to have those things. So that, that's often the right answer is, is, is what do you need? It, it can like, for example, I work at this food pantry, um, and I, I quit my job to do it. Unfortunately, I do have this income through podcasting. Uh, but the food pantry is not only something I do to like give food to like people who are worse off than me. It's it's so I can also get food for myself, uh, so I don't have to work anymore. Um, and let me just say, as someone who has hit up food lines many times in my life, mad respect to you, Andy. I, I love the food pantry people. Y'all are doing God's work. Yeah, thank you. But you see, the distinction I'm making is that uh, it would be a mistake to think that we're just doing it for the needy or something. Like, even if we weren't taking food from it, um, the act of coming together and figuring out how to share and how to share on larger and larger scales and, and share in a way that's less dependent on, like, donations or grants from the state, that's a communist measure, even though it's just getting more and more food and distributing it you know that's mm -hmm. that's uh that's something we can do right now that is a communist measure but no i i think that that's well said your, your last bit as well uh, you know I, I think for whatever reason people always want like the the romanticism and glory of doing communism in the way that like lenin and trotsky and stalin did communism or mao did communism but the, the real story of this movement is like, it's the food banks. It's actually building communities. It's a pro-social ideology. At the very tip, tip top of the iceberg, you have people doing democratic centralism and, and the mass line or whatever your particular ideology dictates. But at the end of the day, it's extremely accessible because all it is is recognizing your social metaphysical existence uh, and and sharing that with your neighbors in a way that that uplifts them, and uh, I I think that's an important reminder for people who want to get into tendy fuck wars on on Twitter over, you know, what, who caused the Holodomor or whatever. Uh, right. The answer to that is I'm I'm sure you know important, but right now what's also important at this time is making sure your, your neighbors aren't starving. They can get rides to work. Uh, you know, all the, all the simple stuff that actually builds the trust necessary to make people put themselves on the line for any sort of revolution. So yeah, I appreciate the, the best answer to a lot here. of those debates is just the one that gets us to stop having it as quickly yeah, as possible. Well said. Yeah. Agreed. When, when you actually have to like, you know, when you actually have to haul like banana boxes filled with canned goods uh, and your muscles start burning, you're way less likely to engage in complex theoretical like dissections of the NEP. And you're way more likely to actually fucking drop that load in front of a, a, a neighbor that needs your work 
and now believes a little bit more in the political project of socialism. Well, all right. Thank you, Andy, for coming on. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot. I, it's fun to uh, just rant. I hope it was largely coherent. <laughs> it was, yes. <laughs> more more coherent than average uh, for us. <laughs> the show account. Is that dumb, awful show? Uh, you should join the Patreon. We've got a lot of back episodes, including the books episode we just did with Mark's Madness. Um, we've got a bunch planned for this month as well. We also just dropped some new merch with Griff Shop. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes. You should check it out. All right. Good. Great talking to you guys. Thanks for having me on. Yep. yep. Thanks for coming on, Andy. Okay. Have a good night.